welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Now today, we are talking all things heart failure. That's correct. This is uh, part one of a two-episode series um, featuring the awesome Kate Kulig, um, giving us all the tips and tricks, all the updates we need for uh, the best management of our patients that present with all sorts of uh, types of heart failure. Um, Now, again, this is episode one, so episode two will get released uh, next week. Now, this episode focuses more on, we kind of start with some of the more nomenclature general stuff before we focus more on the acute management, uh, diuresis, diuretic resistance, uh, IV vasodilators, inotropes, PKPD changes, tips, tricks, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, it's a fantastic um, lead-in into this uh, two-episode heart failure series. Um, so without, a, without further ado, Let's uh, let's hear a word from our two awesome sponsors and then uh, get things going. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Now, joining us today for um, an awesome two-parter, that's right, we're going to have part one and part two, um, is a name that if you were listening, and if you haven't, please go back to the SECM presentations, should be a familiar name, Kate Kulig um, is joining us today to talk all things heart failure. So we're going to have part one and part two, um, but let's introduce Kate a little bit. So she's a clinical assistant professor at the Ernest Murillo School of Pharmacy, Rutgers University, and the clinical cardiology pharmacist at St. Joseph's University Medical Center. You can find her on Twitter at Kate, C-A-I-T underscore Centra. And then she has an incredible website that everyone needs to go join. It is cards.rxexplained.com. Now, Kate's going to do a little bit of, a, of an intro here, but the, the one-liner is to the point, boiled down, simplified explanations of common cardiology topics. I love that, and I greatly appreciate Kate for coming back and joining us again. Kate, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Now, for for those um, that were intrigued by the little one-liner about the website, um, you had talked about kind of how this came to be and what you were thinking about when you joined last, but um, for anyone that is hoping to to go to the website, wants to say, what can you tell them to expect? What's coming? You know, what what awesome things can you highlight about the website that you're doing right now? Yeah. Um, so when I started this website, you know, after I graduated residency and all these things, I realized that cardiology especially is such a pathophys-based, uh, you know, specialty. Mm-hmm. And in order to really understand what's going on and you know, not memorize things. I think pathophys is super important. And I think sometimes, you know, you have to learn so much in school, so much in residency, and you're just trying to get by, right? And memorize everything you can. Um, So I have a really big passion for explaining things simply, breaking concepts down. So hopefully after you read the blog, you know, things like side effects of different drugs and, and what's happening in the body during different, you know, patient presentations. Hopefully it'll start making sense. Um, so I'm always excited when I have learners with me and by the end of the rotation, I'll ask them a question 
and they'll say, hold on, hold on. I'm going to talk myself through this. And they're building on and they're having yeah. a conversation with themselves. And, and sometimes I'm, I, I don't tell them the answer. I'm like, you have all the materials and all the tools you need to figure this out. What do you think and why? That's really cool. And that whole concept of from, you know, keeping it simple and going from that and building up, that is 100% why we are having you on the pod today to talk about, right, one of a very possibly intimidating topic, heart failure. Now, um, for the audience, we're going to have we're going to have two parts. So right now you're listening to part one, which is kind of more of the acute phase uh, management. And then the part two is going to kind of be more of, of transitions of care and more chronic disease state management for the critical care emergency medicine practitioner. Kate's going to educate us about all the drugs that we probably know not enough about and let us know what we should be doing um, when people come in with heart failure exacerbations and when they're trying to be discharged after a heart failure exacerbation. Now, in the spirit of the website, again, that's cards.rxexplained.com. In its simplest definition, what is heart failure? So heart failure is really the inability of the heart to supply enough uh, uh, blood to the rest of the body. So that is kind of the boiled down de definition. And you'll see that there's a ton of different etiologies of what can cause heart failure. And even when you're looking at the different types of heart failure, there could be completely different pathophysiologies going on completely different structures of what's happening. But as long as you remember, at the end of the day, the heart is really unable to supply enough blood to that body. So historically, for the old timers and myself included listening, right, we've had the more historical classifications of heart failure, systolic and diastolic heart failure. Obviously, we should be very familiar with the new nomenclature, but for those of us that are, we're, we're doing the turtle, right? Slow and steady wins the race. What nomenclature do we now use? And then you talked about the pathophys. How does that pathophys between those two vary? So systolic heart failure, another term that we use for that is uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And then we have half pass, which is diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So when we're kind of comparing these two, I always tell my learners systolic heart failure, think S for squeeze. So there's an issue with a contraction of that ventricle and it's an issue with squeeze. So either the heart muscle is de uh, dead or damaged, but for some reason or another, it cannot squeeze as hard. And so you have less blood leaving that left ventricle as a result. Um, so I love using kind of this water bottle analogy. So in a normal heart, you have a full water bottle and you squeeze it really well. And so you have a ton of water coming out of that bottle. What we see in systolic heart failure is you have enough water in that bottle, but you have this little bitty squeeze. And so you're not getting water out of that bottle, right? Um, in diastolic heart failure, it's an issue with diastole or relaxation. So this isn't really at all a contraction problem. This is actually a filling issue. So I think we always have to keep in mind that our heart is a muscle. So I always tell my learners, right, if I went to the gym, which I don't, but if I worked out my biceps, all these things, what would happen over time? My, my muscles would grow. I'd become really jacked. Um, so your heart is no different. So if your heart has to be, um, you know, high afterloads or things like that that it's not used to, what you get is this hypertrophy or this growing of that ventricle. And as it's growing and growing, the space within that left ventricle can become smaller and smaller. So if we go back to that kind of water bottle analogy, you, you know, you have a good squeeze on that water bottle, but you don't have enough water in there. That's a really good explanation because I think especially when people at like, you know, it'll be some sort of a lot of times the question they'll say either it's something with the rejection fraction, which are the reduced or preserved. It's like you and I both have a preserved ejection fraction. I don't think either of us have heart failure. So that's a really good explanation of yes, it's preserved, but here's the issue of, of what's happening with the heart and why it's a problem. Now, of course, we, we, we have to make, we have to keep making new definitions, new classifications, obviously. So in addition to HEFREF and HEFPEF, which by the way, that's what they're going to be referred to as from my perspective. Um, we also have a new category, um, HEFMREF, which I'll be curious how, how we pronounce that abbreviation, but you know, what are, what are these new classifications? What are they adding to our definition and, and how are they being used in research? How are they helping us with patients? Yeah. So new in the guidelines, we have these two new categories. 
As far as how you pronounce them, I think that is up to debate. Uh, for Hef, Mr. EF, that's how I say it. Uh, actually, one yes. of my residency uh, preceptors, shout out to Josh Roberts at UC Davis, he was saying this term back in the day, and so I say it that way. Um, so that's heart failure with moderately reduced ejection fraction. So that is this in-between zone of ejection fraction of 41 to 49%. And then we also have HEF imp EF or heart failure with improved ejection fraction. So that is for patients that had a previous reduced ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%. And since then, they have now improved to uh, greater than 40%. Now, we've kind of, we've talked about EF and ejection fractions. And I feel like when we talk about patients with heart failure, that's like just the buzz term. So again, uh, we're keeping the KISS method here. So keep it simple for me. What is the ejection fraction and are there different ways to interpret someone's? I always try to think of terminology and think of it, think if it makes sense. And luckily it does this time. So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a fraction. So you have one no number over another. I also go back to magic school bus days where I'm Mrs. Frizzle. I am inside that left ventricle, right? So just to reorient our learners, at this point, blood is already oxygenated. The next step for this blood where we're at is leaving that left ventricle, going out the heart through that aortic valve and out to the body. So what your EF basically is, it's the amount of blood your heart is spitting out of that LV per one beat over the total amount of blood that was in that LV prior to it contracting. So, you know, another term for that is end diastolic volume. I really like to illustrate the difference between why EF is such an important term because I think you nailed it. Like, we both have normal preserved ejection fractions, right? So I'm very practical, I'm very visual, so I like to give kind of these examples. So let's say patient A has a left ventricular end diastolic volume of 30 mils. When that LV contracts, let's say it ejects 15 mils out into the systemic circulation. Let's say patient B, their end diastolic volume is 300 mils. And then when their LV contracts, they get 150 mils out to the body. So perfect example, both these patients have an EF of 50%, right? But there is a really big difference in the amount of cardiac output and blood that these patients are getting out into their bodies. Now I have to follow up here. So do you have the crazy dresses that Ms. Frizzle has from the magic school bus? Uh, I wish I was that cool. Anyone who works with me knows that I am in black scrubs every day, all day, no matter where I am. So uh, I'm not that put together. It's black scrubs for me. In, in the words of my wife, who uh, does not work in the hospital, she calls them adult pajamas. She's like, stop complaining. They're adult pajamas. So I, I can't complain. I, I'm, I'm team scrubs. I'm team scrubs. I have no issue with that. That was a really good overview of kind of like our nomenclature and general info about it, because I think even for all of us who treat heart failure patients, I think that was a really good job of, of, of going to the basics of it and kind of making sure we're all on the same page before we get into the management of, of these. Now, before we actually get into the true individual treatments, when we're talking about acute decompensated heart failure, which is what we're going to kind of be moving into, are there any treatments that have been shown to improve patient outcomes in the acute phase? So when we're talking about acute decompensated heart failure, right, that, that means now the heart cannot get and compensate and get enough blood to meet the demands of that body. Um, so unfortunately, in this acute phase in the hospital, none of the acute treatments, to my knowledge, actually decrease mortality in the long term. But, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, hospitalization is a really bad marker for these patients, and it really signals a bad prognosis. So I kind of think about it like COPD. I remember learning about that in pharmacy school, right? And we say that these patients never really truly return to their baseline after an exacerbation. And so in heart failure, hospitalization is really this sentinel event that signals a worse prognosis. So it's all doom and gloom, but right, how can we help out with this situation? Well, we can definitely use it as an example to get guideline-directed medical therapy or GDMT back on board. So um, this whole idea of hospitalization signaling a bad outcome, this is why 
you see hospitalization as, as, as an outcome in so many trials because it truly is a meaningful outcome in these patients, especially as their heart failure worsens. You know, they get more and more hospitalizations. And, you know, that is a ton of burden both on the patient and the healthcare system and cost. Yeah, that's it. It's a, a really, really awesome point because I think, um, especially in the critical care world, we've almost exclusively gone to 90-day mortality as our outcome of choice. But imagine if you were getting hospitalized, right, six times in two months, your quality of life would not be pretty great, would not be very good. And so, um, you know, that's a really good point to highlight why all of these studies emphasize the acute hospitalization and going into the hospital. So- when I think of acute decompensated heart failure, right, I go back to like the four square-esque box, right, the little, the, the plot, and it's got the four categories of wet, dry, cold, and warm. So what are we assessing with these categories? And then probably most importantly, how can we ensure that we're actually putting the right patients in the right box to make sure they get the right treatments? Yeah, I love that, the square box. I totally know what you're saying. It's the four-year <laughs> classification. Uh, and I refer to it the same way with my students often. Um, so broadly speaking, right, when we're talking about that, we, we're assessing two main buckets for these patients that come in. So the first bucket we look at is their volume status. And the second bucket is perfusion. So in other words, how much blood is that heart getting out to that systemic body? So, you know, let's start with perfusion. So um, for this, we use a term called cardiac index. Um, so for our learners, this is similar to cardiac output, which is the amount of oxygenated blood that that heart is giving out per unit of time. But cardiac index means that it's standardized to body size or BSA. Again, I'm visual, so I use this analogy with my learners. So let's say I'm in the CCU, it's very sad. Let's say in the bed next to me is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, and let's say you're rounding on us, right? And the resident goes, okay, well, Tate has a cardiac output of 3.8 liters per minute. And the rock has a cardiac output of 3.9 liters per minute. Well, what does that really mean, right? I think it's very difficult to rapidly interpret. Why? Because the rock needs way more blood flow uh, than I do because he has all those muscles. So by dividing cardiac output by body surface area, we really get this normalized value to quickly see is my patient getting enough cardiac output or not? And usually the number we use is it has to be greater than 2.2 liters per minute per meter square. So that's kind of our perfusion box. The next thing we look at is volume status. I think this is a little trickier for learners to understand, but in order to assess this, we use something called pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or PCWP. Well, okay, what is that, right? So in order to get this number, what they do is they throw in a little catheter or this flexible little tube with sensors into a vein, and then they end up floating it over to the right side of your heart, through that right atrium, through that right ventricle, out to the pulmonary artery, and they let it sit in one of those branches of the pulmonary artery, which is why we call these things pulmonary artery catheters. So I know what you know. you might be thinking, well... Isn't preload kind of the way that we would assess volume status? Yeah, it is, but it's pretty hard to kind of determine the amount of stretch, stretch that ventricle is getting, right? So this is kind of our last best bet. Um, so when we're in the PA, the end of this catheter has this little inflatable balloon section. So they go ahead and they inflate that balloon for a couple of seconds to really occlude that pulmonary artery branch and read that pressure. And that pressure is really our best marker of preload, which is really that stretch and amount of volume that the right side of that heart is getting. So for these, we say 18 milligrams of mercury is really our cutoff. So patients that have a wedge pressure greater than 18, that's what we would consider. This is too much preload. This patient is volume overloaded or wet. So like you were kind of getting to, with these two categories, patients can present warm and wet, wet and cold, warm and dry, cold and dry, with cold and wet definitely being the worst. You got me thinking there when you compared the cardiac output of yourself versus the rock. What do you think the rock's cardiac output is? Like, you kind of got oh, me man, wondering. I don't know. I just did a quick Guinness Book of World Records search and it does not have it, but. I know I love that. this is what the listeners are here for. I did find out 
that the longest time spent in cardiac arrest with full neurologic recovery, eight hours and 42 minutes. I know. Was it, was it a pediatric patient? Do you know? 31 year old mountain climber in Italy. Incredible. Those this Italians. Is, this is a that we need to be telling. This people. is why people came to listen to heart failures Absolutely. to learn about the longest cardiac successful cardiac arrest. Um, I mean, I'm going to tell my husband, and he won't know what I'm saying, but I'm very excited to learn this information. Now, let's go back to the reason that we're here, right? And you're talking about the importance of categorizing and how, um, when we think about the different categories and how wet and cold is kind of the worst category in terms of like um, outcomes or expectations. So. Other than those kind of two factors, what other things should we be looking at um, or into when these patients present with what we think is an, a, a, an acute decompensated uh, heart failure exacerbation? So I always say, look at your patient as a whole. I think it's so easy for us as pharmacists, physicians, nurses to love our numbers, right? We like getting that data. We like treating the data. But there are a ton of volume overload markers instead of this wedge pressure. So just a couple of things, right? You can look at the IVC with ultrasound to see is it plump or collapsible. You can look at JVD. Does your patient have pulmonary edema, right? Are they short of breath? Does their chest x-ray show it? Um, BNP is another lab marker we can look at. And what BNP is, it's basically released whenever there's ventricular stretch. So when our ventricles get overloaded, they stretch and BNP will get elevated. Um, patients will also tell you, right, I've been requiring more pillows to sleep at night. You know, I've had worsening lower extremity edema and weight gain. Um, so that's really what I think of from the volume standpoint. And then markers of poor perfusion other than cardiac index, things like cold extremities and increased capillary filling time. I always tell my learner, learners, right, so what do we expect seeing? And at first, they're not sure. But boil it down, right? What's the purpose of the heart? It's to feed the organs. Well, give me an organ, right? And we'll talk about what you see. Well, if you're not getting enough blood to your brain, altered mental status. If you're not getting enough blood to your liver, you can have elevated LFTs. Kidneys, you can have increased urine creatinine, decreased urine output. Um, and besides those, other factors that will be good to know in general when we're treating these patients is what is their home diuretic dose? It's great to know what their quote-unquote dry weight is. Uh, not a perfect science, but at least to have kind of an estimate. Otherwise, prior to discharge, you know, it's great to know was there something that brought them in specifically? Was there a trigger for this? So whether it's lack of compliance with GDMT or, you know, lack of access to this medication, um, you know, did they have a huge Thanksgiving feast the day before or earlier that week? Um, were they accidentally started on something like a negative inotrope, like, you know, diltiazem or, you know, factors like this, because we're, we're hopefully trying to identify if there are any triggers for these patients um, so we can fix these things or at least counsel patients to avoid this in the future. Yeah, I think like what you, what what you're hitting at there, right, is you're talking to the patient and getting the whole picture, right? You're you're talking to them about how they're sleeping, mentioning pillows. You're talking about, are they taking more meds? Or did they get started on new meds? Have they had issues getting, you know, their their GDMT things? All, so, so what I'm hearing for the learners listening is that it sounds like we have to talk to these patients, true or false? Very true, very true. <laughs> Um, now we're, we're going to hit on a lot of the guideline directed medical therapy in episode two, but I had to ask this question here because I'm sure this has to be an incredible soapbox for so many cardiology pharmacists when they're in the, when patients come in with a heart failure exacerbation, I imagine guideline directed medical therapy gets held far more often than it should. And I would say, especially when, right? I think a lot of them have good intentions, right? They think these agents may adversely affect a patient's hemodynamics. But do we have any specific instances um, or guidance or is it all patient specific when we should actually really be holding these agents versus letting them continue on their, on their chronic um, therapy? I think you said it really well that oftentimes these agents are held, and again, with good intentions, 
But, you know, let's see what the guidelines or the data actually says, right? So really, pre-existing guideline-directed medical therapy should be continued and optimized unless contraindicated. So, you know, I think oftentimes, um, you know, you might see a mild decrease in renal function or their blood pressure will get low, but they're asymptomatic. Really, diuresis and GDMT should not be discontinued for this. And if it is, it should be reinstituted ASAP. Um, there's plenty of evidence out there supporting that withdrawing this, you know, GDMT during hospitalization is worse in the long in the long term, right? So we have higher rates of mortality and readmission post discharge. And sometimes, you know, oftentimes we we might forget to put it back on afterwards. Yep. So, you know, really thinking about when to hold actually. So if a patient is in, you know, really low cardiac output. Um, really, the guidelines go as far as saying the true contraindications are rare. So if they're advanced degree AV block without a pacer, if they're in cardiogenic shock, or, you know, if they have angioedema, all these things. Um, but again, we have data that shows that even a 20% decrease in EGFR during these hospitalizations was not associated with, with AKI. So um, when you have these agents on board. There's also some data actually supporting that spironolactone and beta blockers might be protective in patients with heart failure and worsening renal function. We'll have to put a pin in that because I know that we're going to have tons, tons more of talking points there. Um, but I think that's a really, really good point of like, here, a good job of here's what the data shows despite us tr thinking what we're doing is the right thing. So from what I'm hearing from you, right, other than, you know, there might be specific instances, but we should really be fighting as pharmacists to keep these therapies started. And the transitions of care piece should not be ignored. How easily could things get missed, right? We held their core egg and suddenly that's not on their med list anymore. And then, right, they go a month without it. Like it's a, I think all of us are familiar with those transitions of care issues and things we can do to prevent that, um, always make everyone's life a little easier. Absolutely. Now let's kind of move into the specific management of acute decompensated heart failure patients. And we'll, we'll kind of start when we think a patient may be wet or fluid overload. As we're talking about diuresis, you mentioned some of the lab markers and some of the physical exams. Like are those, are like the physical exam or lab markers are those an okay route to decide if patients are, are um, fluid overloaded or is there a role for routine invasive monitoring with things like a Swan-Gans catheter or like those more invasive um, devices that gives you those kind of specific numbers that you highlighted, like your wedge pressure, for example? I love the term Swan-Gans catheters because I love when physicians say like, float that swan in there, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool expression. Um, but... You know, it's really interesting because their pulmonary artery catheters, like we we're talking about getting that wedge pressure. Like I said before, you know, in theory, you know, they're that gold standard. They're on that Forrester classification. Um, you need to be, it is a degree of invasive monitoring, right? But it's not the most invasive. Um, but, you know, you are sticking a long tube up into your pulmonary arteries. Um, what I think is really interesting, though, is that really these PACs have not been shown in studies to actually improve outcomes. Um, and really the guidelines say they're useful to guide management in carefully selected patients. So honestly, there's no established role for routine use for these. Um, again, even though as clinicians, we love our numbers, we love our data, but it's not really uh, translated into these hard outcomes. So I always say at the end of the day, let the patient guide you, their signs and symptoms, what you can see, and really relying on PACs maybe if the picture is mixed or, you know, we're doubting certain things, maybe to help verify and help guide treatment. And for, for learners listening, what you do, what different hospitals and different physician groups are going to do greatly different things. And yeah. um, so it's going to kind of be one of those once you're at a, a place for a period of time, you'll get an idea of what the practice is there because um, it really is kind of practice specific. And that was a really good job highlighting that. Although those numbers are important for some patients, they're not necessarily useful or um, they don't necessarily guide our management for all patients. Absolutely. Now, tail as old as time, dosing 
and administering diuretics. Now, I, I had talked about this previously, and I gave I gave um, the cardiology teams their flowers because I feel like they are aggressive with diuresis. Now, that being said, dosing and how to give this, it's a routine source of disagreement. And the dose trial, which is like maybe my favorite and least favorite trial at the same time, looking at high dose and low dose IV diuretics, they were supposed to make this more clear for us. But my question for you is, is, did they? ALS all this time also kind of like cardiologists versus nephrologists. I'm, I'm totally yes, kidding, yes. but you know, uh, it, it is a good question. So loop diuretics have been the mainstay of therapy for years and years, and we definitely still mainstay, even in the latest rendition of the guidelines. Um, and that's because they really provide the most rapid and effective method of decongestion and all these things. But like you said, what's the right dose? What's the right dosing strategy? It's a big question to ask. Um, really, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach because patients become resistant to their diuretics. So you can't just pick a dose right and, and go off of that. So really, like you said, it was a 2011 dose trial that kind of investigated these things, and it had a dual purpose. The first question was, Is are these high-dose IV diuretics, which was defined as two-and-a-half times the home dose as IV, or low dose, which is equal to the home dose, which is better. And then the other question they asked is, what kind of administration strategy is, is better? Is continuous infusion better than IV bolus in these patients? Well, what did they find? A couple of things. So they found that high-dose loop diuretics were associated with better symptom improvement with the cost of a little renal impairment, um, but really high-dose were better than low-dose, while they found that continuous Diuretic infusions were no better, so very equal compared to those intermittent diuretic boluses. Um, a few things I think that are good to note about this trial. So, you know, one thing is that two and a half times IV home dose, right, or that home dose as IV, we actually didn't account for bioavailability in that trial um, of Lasix, for example, or furosemide. So if a patient was on 40 milligrams of furosemide uh, orally at home, at the hospital, they would get 100 milligrams IV, which is really showing that initial high dose should be aggressive. So they didn't account for bioavailability there. The other thing that I think is really important to note with the dose trial is for the patients on continuous infusion, they did not get an initial bolus up front. Um, and we know that in order for these patients to start diuresing, they have to have a concentration above their own diuretic threshold. So it's not surprising, right, that patients that didn't get a bolus and just started on a low-dose continuous infusion, well, they probably took a lot longer to get to that diuretic threshold. So I think the results, in my opinion, are a little mixed. I think in practice, if we're going to do a continuous infusion, definitely do an initial bolus at the beginning of it. Um, and again, it's mixed data. Honestly, my opinion is I kind of consider continuous infusion as an escalation of dosing since you're really going to give that slow yep. concentration where you're above that diuretic threshold for a long period of time. Um, also interesting to note here, because we we're kind of talking about this last time I was on about what is a large cardiology trial. This is a huge landmark trial, right? Um, but it was only about 300 patients. So I just think it kind of goes again, like, uh, I think my learners are always surprised when we're talking about how we do things. And they just take it sometime as fact, right? Because that's what they learn in school. That's what's done. But when you look at the data, you're like, you know, we're really going off of 300 patients, but right. It's the best we got. We try to make medicine black and white when we really just swim in the gray 24, 23, six, right? Not 24, seven, but, but close. I love that. Um, yes. now with diuretics, um, obviously there are some classic adverse effects. Um, what are strategies or how do you manage to maybe help get ahead of these to avoid these diuretics being held due to adverse effects from them? There's a couple of things that we really want to keep in mind when we're doing these high-dose diuretics. The first being it electrolytes, right? So I have a vivid memory of when I was in residency, right? And really learning that potassium is really one of those sensitive and dangerous electrolytes. So, you know, for better terms, you know, it can really kill a patient quickly if it rapidly shifts. 
Um, we also know that uh, changes in potassium, especially low potassium, or also really high, are associated with cardiac arrhythmias. So it's something that we really want to keep an eye on when we're diureting to prevent severe hypokalemia from happening. Um, so you always want to keep on top of potassium supplementation. Really, the recommendation in our cardiac patients is to keep potassium greater than four. Um, but you always have to keep in mind, right, that potassium is also renally excreted. So you have to be cautious with repeat dosing if patients are having things like AKI or if they have CKD. Practical tip, right, if a patient has been on the same diuretic dose for a few days, good urine output, they're continually getting repeated, you know, recommend scheduling that potassium. Or on the other hand, right, I think on the other hand, if they have good renal function, no sign of AKI, good urine output, you know, put on that 20 or 40 daily, but it's really patient specific. Um, on the other hand, if it's already scheduled, keep an eye on their renal function and their diuretic dose. So kind of the other end of that spectrum. We don't want a patient developing AKI and, you know, no one notices that that standing potassium is still on board because they've been doing well on it. Um, so that's really kind of my feedback with the electrolytes. Uh, the other issue that we have commonly seen in the past with high doses of IV loop diuretics is phototoxicity. Um, so I think one good way to get around that is, you know, instead of getting these high, high doses and escalating, you know, you can do a continuous infusion. So you're still staying above that diuretic threshold, but you're not slamming them with these IV boluses. Another thing I think about with our diuretics is blood pressure variations, right? And that should make sense because we're making our patients urinate a ton. They may get hypotensive. So if you're seeing a patient being very sensitive to these blood pressure variations with these IV boluses, you know, recommend doing that slower continuous infusion if you have to. I kind of think about these blood pressure shifts. It's, it's different, but kind of similar as when we're managing patients on intermittent hemodialysis versus lead versus CRT, what are they able to handle in, in terms of those fluid shifts? Um, and then lastly, the other big one, traction alkalosis. So your loop diuretics, they promote excretion of salt and water, but they don't excrete out bicarb, unfortunately, or bicarbonate. Um, so a good fix for contraction alkalosis is you can use acetazolamide. 250 to 500 milligrams per day. Good thing about it, it's very well tolerated. It's cheap. It even has some diuretic properties. And, you know, eventually maybe we'll get into some of the recent trials that looked at it in acute decompensated heart failure. We absolutely will. I love that trial. Now, um, when we're using diuretics, one of the most important things, right, is our eyes and O's and their fluid status. So, do you have any tips or tricks as it relates to interpreting those I's and O's? And then possibly even more importantly, when should we use caution? When When is the I's and O's maybe not the, the Bible of their fluid status? You know, I think it's kind of funny in a way. And I was the same way when I was early on in a learner. Um, but I think when we're thinking of I's and O's, even though we're talking about quite literally intake and output, I think sometimes eyes and nose just become net, right? Like what was their net? Um, and eyes and nose are really just interpreting volume status. It's, it's like looking like at a bunch of constellations to generate this bigger clinical picture. I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind with eyes and nose. So the first point is that, you know, a patient can still be vastly volume overloaded as a whole, but they can be intravascularly dry. Um, so kind of a scenario I use with learners is we have a patient coming in with ADHS, we get them on a good diuretic dose, they're outputting a ton, urine output's great, cracking is stable, and then bam, on day three, all of a sudden, the urine output is down, their cracking is rising, maybe we have a, a rise in BUN as well, but on exam, they're still very volume overloaded, they have a ton of edema and all these things. What is happening here, right? So again, it's this idea that patients can be volume overloaded as a whole, but in their actual vessels, they can be intravascularly dry. Um, you know, when patients get peripheral edema and that volume starts to third space, it doesn't happen like poof, right? That takes time. So in the same way, if we're diuresing too quickly, we're not giving enough time for that volume in the third space to get back into that vasculature. So the fix there is, you know, 
hold that horse, slow down that diuresis. So, you know, uh, really, again, this is when you're seeing large changes in creatinine output um, for urine output. Again, you should not stop diuresis if you just see, like, you know, small changes in serum creatinine. Just want to, you know, reiterate that. Um, like I said before, I also think it's important to be familiar with the I's and O's instead of just, you know, separately instead of just the next. You know, another scenario, we might be rounding on a patient with acute decompensated heart failure, their volume overloaded. I think it's easy for someone to say, a patient was only net negative, you know, like 400 mils yesterday. Let's escalate diuresis. They're not urinating out enough, right? But I think it's important to double check what that 400 means, right? Mm -hmm. Is this truly a diuresis issue where they're not producing enough urine or is it actually an intake issue, right? So... We might have patients that have great urine output, but you'll look at their intake and they're getting no volume restriction or they're getting a ton of IV medications, all these things. So really, you don't want to escalate diuresis there. You just want to pull back on that intake. So concentrate IV medications when you can. Um, switch to orals when able, fluid restriction. You know, all these things. You really don't want to keep pushing those kidneys if you're having adequate urine output. So just being familiar with that. And then lastly, I think it's always important to keep in mind that our serum creatinine lags, right? So yes, we use serum creatinine all the time, but we all know it's not the best marker because it takes time. So a much better marker is really urine output. Um, so I personally use, um, you know, mils per kilo per hour, um, you look at weights. Again, you're looking at other markers of fluid status like their IBC on echo or JVD elevation. So especially when we're talking about these critically ill ADHS patients, you know, cramming is like down the road, just like one other point that I'm kind of looking at. I'm really focused on their urine output. And then depending on what, like, in in ICUs specifically, right, the I's and O's are going to be pretty accurate. But, you know, if someone transfers in from, say, a med surge floor, right, a lot of times, A, they're not tracking those I's and O's completely. And then maybe they only have the, the output documented, right, in eight, at 8 a.m. So, like you said, diving into that and just not looking at the net but being like, oh, well, they're only counting the number of times they went to the bathroom, not the the fluid from it and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, like you said, being sure that we're not just looking at the net value and thinking of the the whole total pictures is um, really good advice. Now, with diuretics, if the only argument was dosing and how to administer our loop diuretics, I would imagine that management and things would be much easier. But we also eventually have to overcome a phenomenon called diuretic resistance, right? Your body's smart. So it starts to resorb fluid and salt in other places in your kidney. So when thinking about diuretic resistance, because there are a lot of different strategies, is there a, do you have a general stepwise approach? Do the guidelines give us any escalation kind of plan or is it, is it the wild, wild west and we're just hitting every part of the kidney? Yeah, everyone's out there just being a cowboy. I'm just kidding. Uh, there's definitely many different beliefs on the exact stepwise approach. Um, there's really no clear one-size-fits-all based on the data. Um, but I will tell you, from the guidelines, this is kind of what they recommend. So really first, you know, I think this is more obvious, but starting with that serial doubling of the IV loop diuretics to hopefully cross that diuretic ceiling. After that, um, we have our sequential nephron blockade with a thiazide. So I totally geek out with my students. I just think the mechanism is just so cool how we're stopping that sodium and water yeah. absorption later on. Um, and yeah, you get better diuresis, good results overall, overall and it's really guideline endorsed. Um, I just want to also mention a clinical pearl. So there was a 2020 trial called the 3T trial, and they looked at oral metolazone versus IV chlorothiazide. And IV thiazide are really traditionally much more expensive. And they found similar efficacy at 48 hours with, you know, weight loss. So um, I think it's something to keep in mind, especially with cost savings, that there is some data kind of to back that up there. Um, the guidelines also mention, uh, you know, MRAs. So the aldosterone agonists having mild diuretic properties. So they can help with both diuresis and CV benefits. Um, 
Unfortunately, though, despite diuretic properties, and we'll talk about this later, but we know these agents are good in general heart failure. You know, I think we were all bummed back in the day. I was a fourth year API student and I did this as a journal club, the Athena HF trial. So what they looked at here was if we do these higher doses of spironolactone, like 100 milligrams, can we get really good diuresis there? And unfortunately, we didn't see significant difference. So kind of mixed data there. Um, I know it's very controversial, so I don't even want to say it, but low-dose renal dopamine is mentioned in the guidelines. Um, the only thing I will say there is that, you know, even though it didn't improve outcomes in the overall studies on it, uh, there was a subset analysis showing increased urine output and weight loss in patients that had an EF of less than 40%. So you, people are dopamine believers or they're not. We're not going to go there. Uh, just staying with the guidelines, stay there. Um, and then sometimes it's really as simple as adding some inotropy and increasing the squeeze from that heart. Because sometimes you just need that kickstart and getting more blood flow and perfusion to those kidneys. There's also some discussion in the guidelines about ultrafiltration, which again, I think is in theory is like so cool. We're just like getting rid of water out of these people. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we don't have great data on this and it's not really endorsed by the guidelines. Um, if you end up having a patient on aquaphoresis or what we call puff, also such a cool freaking word, um, we, we, I think it's important to keep in mind that we would not redose renally adjusted meds or things like vancomycin after these sessions because you're not removing any of the drugs during these sessions. So always kind of keep that in mind if you do see it. Scorching hot take, bringing in renal dose dopamine into the pod. But, hey, messenger, you're the messenger only. You're the messenger only. Um, now, since the guidelines were published, are there any other um, medicines or, or any like data that shows that can assist us with diuresis? Like you had kind of mentioned um, a recent trial with acetazolamide, but is there anything? Is there anything else or other agents that we should we should be considering other than kind of the numerous ones you mentioned, like the thiazides and the loops and um, um, ultrafiltration and things like that. For all of my fellow cardiology nerds, we've been super excited in the past even year or so to see some of these trials come out investigating these new agents. So when we look at the guidelines, there is a quote saying, you know, it's really unknown how SGLT2 inhibitor therapy will affect diuretics and all these things. And you know, just released in June of last year, we had the MPAG-HF trial. It was small, um, but it looked at the effect of empaglyphosin started early, so within 12 hours of ADHF hospitalization, and they added it to standard care versus not. Primary endpoint was cumulative urine output over five days, and we saw statistically increased, about a 25% increase uh, in urine output without an effect on renal function. Um, so they really found that this early addition of empagliflozin to standard diuretics increased urine output. And I think the other good thing to see is that we saw a lot of patients, a good representation of patients with class 4 or NYHA class 4. Um, besides that, the other big trial that I was alluding to earlier is the ADVOR trial. We always have the cool names for the trials in cardiology. Yeah, we're jealous um, of it in critical so care. Yeah, it's very cool, uh, not to brag. But uh, we saw using IV bolus acetazolamide versus placebo, around 500 patients in this one. So it, it was larger. And we found more successful congestion, again, statistically, in that diamox or acetazolamide group. A uh, couple things to note, patients on SGLT2 inhibitors were excluded. Uh, not surprising because that wasn't really the mainstay of Terra this time. It is important to note, though, that both our SGLT2 inhibitors and acetazolamide both work in that proximal tubule. So, you know, it's that kind of question still remains how they would do together. Overall, acetazolamide, you know, good safety data, fairly inexpensive. But, you know, arguably, I this is just my opinion, I think that these trials may not be uh, giving us a final answer of that age-old problem of what to do in patients with diuretic resistance. So I think it's interesting to note that in MPAG-HF, only around half of patients uh, were on loop diuretics prior to hospitalization, 
And when we look at the ADWOR trial, they actually excluded patients that required IV loop diuretics greater than 80 milligrams uh, of ferrocemide equivalent. And, you know, subgroup analysis, we all know that you can't, you know, it should be taken with a grain of salt. But when we look at our subgroup analysis, we also saw the patients that required higher doses of diuretics at baseline did not do as well. So, you know, hypothesis inducing, I, but overall, I think that these are great trials and, and something that we can add and think about in these patients. The SGLT2 inhibitors are, they're, they're kind of, are they going the route of metformin where I'm going to be seeing these studied in everything? Because boy, every, every kind of disease state or intervention that they get studied in, it's, they seem to have some sort of positive outcome with it. I know. I, I joke with my learners, like back in the day, we used to say like, oh, statin should be in the water, all these like pleiotropic effects. And now I'm like, I don't know, like the SGLT2 inhibitors might take the cake there. Like you, like you said, like diabetes, check, heart failure, check, CKD. Now one of them is FDA approved just in CKD alone. So yeah, I think they're kind of these like voodoo drugs where, you know, we know some of the mechanism of action, but I think a lot of it is yet to really be elucidated. Now we've talked about add-on therapy and, um, you know, assistance of maybe giving one-time doses of, to help overcome some diuretic resistance, get patients back to their dry weight. But I think a question that I typically get, um, especially from learners and sometimes from the team is when do you decide, um, to kind of continue that therapy on discharge, right? Like we've seen the patients who have metolazone and they take it a couple times a week. How do you decide when to give just spot doses inpatient versus continuing it as an outpatient? Oh, I know we hate this answer, but I definitely think it's very patient specific. You know, I would say generally if patients are coming in with all this volume overload, especially if there's not a clear trigger, most of them, but not all of them, they probably met that criteria where they will probably need some sort of oral diuretic on discharge. You know, on the outpatient side, we say if you gain two pounds overnight or five pounds in a week, that's when you kind of want to think about starting it. Really, though, patient-specific, I think you have to see how, you know, sensitive they are, see their response inpatient, and, you know, switch them to those oral, uh, you know, diuretics before discharging and see how they do. And if they become too dry and their BUN goes up, you know, um, and I think it's also important for all these patients to have really close follow-up after their hospitalization so they don't get rehospitalized within 90 days. That's a really, that's a really good point. And I kind of assumed that it was, it was patient specific, but that's a really good explanation of, um, for us as inpatients, uh, primarily trying to decide when, when we think that that may happen or not. Um, now as we were talking about diuretic resistance, you had kind of brought up that some of these patients need inotropes to really help things like truly get moving and help get diuresis. So, moving into IV vasoactive therapy and kind of talking about those cold patients, right? Where we want to work on um, getting our blood flow up. Talking about the vasodilators, when when do the guidelines recommend that we should actually be using IV vasodilators and, and for what purpose are they? It's a great question. When we're looking at the 22, uh, 2022 guidelines, we see a class 2B recommendation that if our patients don't have hypotension, you can give them, you know, our vasoactive agents like nitroglycerin or nitroperoxide. And really their use is to get that relief of dyspnea, shortness of breath, and pulmonary congestion. Um, so, you know, by getting that, especially venous uh, vasodilation, you're reducing preload. You know, sometimes we have to wait a really long time for patients to urinate out enough to help with their symptoms of dyspnea, right? So by putting these agents on, we're kind of helping them feel better in the meantime. Um, but really, it's mostly to target that pulmonary congestion for symptoms, and it's only an, a di uh, an adjunct to diuretics. Diuretics are really the ones that are treating that underlying cause. So the two, when we're talking about vasodilators, right, the two most commonly used agents are going to be IV nitroglycerin and IV sodium nitroprusside or nipride. So do you have a first-line choice when you're thinking of vasodilators, or is it generally a patient-specific decision? Between nitroglycerin and, and you know, nitroprusside, 
there are a little differences I think we have to keep in mind. So nitrile peroxide is kind of special in that it is very potent even at afterload reduction. Um, so, you know, some people think it's the most potent IV afterload reduction agent we have. Um, so it works on both those veins and those arteries, but it's very expensive. And, you know, in patients with renal impairment, there is kind of this question about cyanide toxicity, um, you know, and really you have the potential for really strong hypotension with this drug because of that afterload reducing property. Nitroglycerin, you know, in general, it's more selective for veins, especially at those lower doses. Um, so, you know, just giving cost considerations and, and kind of what would happen for most patients, I think that personally nitroglycerin is what I would consider first line because in a lot of cases, it does the trick and it's cost effective. Um, and I always think that there are some other agents we could always use to help in that afterload reduction. However, I am glad that nitroprusside exists and I might get some heat for saying that. Um, again, because it's very, very potent and afterload reducer and it's good to have on hand for when we need it. So whenever sodium nitroprusside is brought up, the idea of cyanide toxicity enters someone's mind. So my question is, how common is this? Is this kind of like hyperkalemia and succinylcholine? Is this a risk that we may have overblown just a little bit in our minds? Yeah, I always love it. It's like cyanide toxicity. It's so hardcore. <laughs> uh, it always reminds me of when I learned about the Joxin in school. And they're like, oh, yeah, your patients are going to have these like halo glows and Van Gogh had overdosed on the Joxin when he painted the starry night. And then you get into practice. And they're like, oh, yeah, like I have GI upset. And you're like, where's my visual halos? Um, but no, I think it's kind of the case here. Like um, we do see cyanide toxicity. But with that being said, it's not as common as maybe you might think or as we learn maybe in school. I think because it's a very extreme side effect. It's something that we like tend to remember. Um, but really the biggest patient population that we see at risk for this cyanide toxicity is in patients with renal impairment or those with significant hepatic disease and they're getting high dose prolonged infusions and you're getting that accumulation. Um, so I think that is a con in a way of nitroprusside is if you have it on board, you know, you have to be extra vigilant about renal function. You have to be extra vigilant about dose and how long are we keeping this drug on. Now, kind of shifting, staying in that vasoactive territory, right? Kind of hitting on those vasodilators, but then moving into inotropes, right? A therapy that, you know, we could see patients coming in on with home pumps. So, milrinone and dobutamine, all of us are pretty um, familiar that those are our most, most common inotropes, but they have vastly different mechanisms of action. So, how are these similar and how are they different? Are they really the mainstay of treating low cardiac index or low perfusion? Our two main inotropes, right, are dobutamine and milrinone. Like you said, they're both given as continuous infusion. Really, the main difference clinically between these agents, when we think of milrinone, uh, I remember learning this term in school, the ionodilator, which I love. So besides increasing contractility, it also has these vasodilatory effects. Um, so they're more, milrinone is more likely to cause decrease in blood pressure. Now, I know what you might be thinking at first. Well, this sounds like pretty bad, right? Well, when you think about it, this, this could be very beneficial in our patients with systolic heart failure who their heart is already having issues getting that blood out, that afterload reduction, making it easier for that blood to go forward. It could be very, very helpful. Um, whereas dopudamine, um, you know, it primarily just works on that beta-1 receptor to increase inotropies. Um, the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that milrinone is renally excreted where dobutamine is not. So um, you have this potential for accumulation with milrinone as you get worsening renal function. And it also has a longer half-life. So, you know, this could be an issue because if someone's not paying attention to renal function and they have this milrinone drip on and all of a sudden now the patient becomes hypotensive, well, you know, guess what? You're going to stop that drip. but that hypotension isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Yep. Um, you know, and, and I always recommend that if you end up having a patient that is both on, let's say, milrinone or and pressors at the same time, 
you know, don't put, you know, these map goals for both agents. You should really be titrating one and letting the other one sit. So I, I, I normally recommend, um, you know, titrating the pressers and, and doing that constant rate of millerinone. Um, the other biggest side effect of both is tachyarrhythmias. So when I go through my inotrope and my presser talk with my learners, I kind of teach them about, you know, the different, you know, receptors and all these things. And really that anything that is hitting that beta one has the potential for tachyarrhythmias. Um, when we're looking at these inotropes, there's really conflicting data as far as which one has a higher rate of these tachyarrhythmias. I'll be honest, oftentimes um, in practice, we'll try one um, based on the patient's, you know, hemodynamics. And if they get tachyarrhythmias on it, sometimes we'll switch. Um, you know, at this point, dobutamine is on shortage. So we're definitely seeing a lot more millerinone right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, lack of robust evidence to suggest clear benefits. So choice is really guided by blood pressure, arrhythmias, and like I said, availability. Um, while we're talking about, you know, inotropes, I do just want to say, I have a little soapbox here, that one presser you should really be avoiding at, in, at all costs in patients with you know, ADHF and systolic heart failure is phenylephrine, right? H, yep. So the last thing, yeah, so the last thing we want to do is have all that alpha agonism, that increase in SVR with no benefit, right, to increase that squeeze because you're just going to make the situation much worse. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, there's really an interesting drug in the pipeline right now, but it has mixed data, but we'll see what happens with it. Um, I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly, but it's omicantiv-micarbil, and it's very interesting. It's basically like uh, it's going to be an oral inotrope in a way. So it'd be used chronically, and it's targeting those myosin heads of the contracting cells in the heart. And I kind of think about it like using, you know, like the analogy of tug of war with a rope. So it's helping you know, getting those stronger contractions. So, you know, this is mostly for the card nerds out there, but we'll see what happens. Uh, the FDA ruling on it is expected, you know, in the coming week. Well, I hope you said it right because it's the first time I heard it. So I'm guaranteed to pronounce it that way for like five years, probably. Um, <laughs> now, you mentioned patients coming on in home pumps and home infusions. So when should we ever mess with a patient's home infusion or home pump, whether it's stopping it, reducing the rate, um, what are there, are there times that we should be messing with their, with their, you know, um, IV home inotrope therapy? This is a little bit provider specific. So I have my own opinion. Um, generally we do not see switching unless a patient is having now a ton of tachyarrhythmias. Um, but you know, I think that if your patient is coming in and now they have AKI and they're getting hypotensive, right? I would not recommend at that point continuing their whole millerinone. If possible, I'd say, you know, let's switch them to dobutamine right now because they don't need that SVR lowering. Um, the rarest circumstance where you might, you know, see them stop completely is if the patient has an impella put in as a backup. So, you know, for our learners, an impella is this catheter inserted, which means you're not going to have open heart surgery. It's just putting, you know, a catheter through a vessel. And they let this machine, it's really cool, they let it sit within that left ventricle and, you know, out towards the aorta. And it serves really as this vacuum to suck out blood, spit it out into the aorta. So it's really offloading the work of that heart um, and doing what the, you know, inotrope would help with. And just for our quick care people out there, if you haven't heard, there is now an approved purge solution device to, and for our learners, that's to prevent the machine for, from clotting up. But Purge solution now is approved with you no know, a heparin-free bicarb-based solution. So if you have a patient on Impella and they're bleeding or high risk of bleeding, um, we do have this bicarb-based solution instead that's now approved. I love Impellas. I, I describe them as the sub pump for the heart. And if you if you get oh, a I chance if you get a chance to to sit in on one of the reps, it's really cool when they put the motor in like the water bottle. It looks like a boat motor. It's wild. It's really cool. Um, uh huh. What an awesome explanation of kind of all of our management, thinking of these patients that have acute decompensed heart failure. I want to end with two questions. So we know fluid overload can affect some of our PKPD of, of, of drugs and things. So are there 
are there things to keep in mind? Um, like you mentioned milrinone, right? For people who have AKI and things, but are there specific drugs or side effects we should keep in mind where the PKPD might be a little bit different when they're in a fluid overloaded state? So I think that's a good point. Um, especially when we see patients that have congestion often associated with that low ejection fraction, just that congestion of their liver and all these things can affect clearance of our medications. If I had to pick one, the big one that kind of sticks with me ever since residency is warfarin. So oftentimes you'll see these cardiac patients come in with EDHF and their INR is through the roof. Like it's all high. The provider's freaking out, right? They're like, this dose was way too high for them. We're going to cut it and then hold on to something much lower. Um, but really, especially for this example, um, you really don't want to change or lower the dose on discharge. I think it's easy to say, hey, this was too high for them. They're super therapeutic when they came in. But in reality, many times it's because the patient is volume overloaded and they're getting that congestion in the liver. And once that congestion clears, you know, that dose will be appropriate again. Okay. And then finally, right? We're going to give, we're going to give you and your cardiology colleagues a platform here. Are there things that we as critical care, um, pharmacists, are there things we routinely do in the ICU that we need to be thinking twice, or this is the, this is the, the audio version of you slapping my hand away when I'm trying to do something. Are there examples of things that, that we could shore up just a little bit? Uh, you guys are doing great. I have a ton to learn from you guys, but you know, I think we are all on board with this, but it's just something that is always good to reiterate. Biggest thing, of course, is going to be fluids and conserving fluids. Um, if someone is trialing fluids in this type of patient, you don't want to give a giant bolus. Again, looking at your hospital formulary and your IV room, having a list of, you know, what IV meds can we concentrate? Um, just to have that available so you can decrease, again, that intake that the patient is getting. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, depending on the severity, and if patients are in cardiogenic shock, you know, be careful about using groups like sub-Q, right? Because they're not getting a ton of that, you know, perfusion on their extremities and all these things. Um, so opt to op use IV in the immediate term when you can. So things like insulin drips, or even heparin drips for like DVT prophylaxis. I think it's, you know, again, it's patient specific, but you know, something to keep in mind. Love it. Awesome. Um, a really, really awesome uh, overview for acute decompensated heart failure. Kate, thank you so much. Everyone stay tuned. Part two is coming um, where we talk about more of our um, chronic disease state management transitions of care, and I'm guessing for our critical care colleagues, this is where it's we're gonna we're gonna learn so much. We're gonna be drinking out of a fire hose. So stay tuned, Kate. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a blast. Uh, thanks again to to Kate Kulig for uh, taking the time for, and this is just part one. Um, joining uh, me to talk all things heart failure. Please reach out to her. Um, let her know how how uh, awesome of a job she did and how much uh, how much she taught everybody. Uh, so at Kate C A I T underscore Centra is where, you, where you'll find her on Twitter. And then um, it makes sense that she would have a cardiology blog with how well she did of describing our acute management of heart failure. So if you're looking for more cards dot rx explained dot com to the point boiled down simplified explanation of common cardiology topics. So again, you can always reach out to me as well at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email at pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. <laughs>